AG News, Episode 1. You're listening to Health Empowerment News with Croft Woodruff. Listen every week for information on natural health solutions so you can take control of your health using natural means. Welcome everybody to the first ever episode of Health Empowerment News with Croft Woodruff. My name is Andrew McGivern and we're here in the Vancouver studios with Croft. Hello Croft. Hello there, Andrew. It's good to see you. You bet. So um, today's topic for the very first episode is what the ancients knew that modern medicine has forgot. Well, I don't know how much modern medicine has really forgot. Sometimes I think it's deliberate, and and I think uh, this will kind of explain it. In 1915, in a lead editorial of the Journal of the American Medical Association, Dr. David Macht an instructor in clinical medicine and a lecturer in pharmacology at John Hopkins University wrote, and I quote, if the current, or rather if the entire materia medica at our disposal were limited to the choice and use of only one drug, I am sure that a great many, if not the majority of us, would choose opium. And I am convinced that if we were to select, say, half a dozen of the most important drugs in the pharmacopoeia, we would all, or we should all place opium in the first rank. Now, that's very interesting, 1915. And of course, uh, when you go back into history, you find that opium has been used for a long, long time. Marvelous painkiller, but why did they change their mind? Why did they take a completely different tack about opium to the point that, it's a pretty hard sentence if you're caught with the opiates, uh, unless you have, of course, something that's been legally prescribed to you, such as a hydromorphone or, and, and many of its, uh, uh, how do you say, copycats. But what is it? That these are all patented drugs. Synthetic medications? They, they have been uh, tampered with uh, synthetically. And that's not to say that hydromorphone uh, doesn't do what it is supposed to do. In fact, uh, in the refining of opium, uh, into morphine, they have one particular compound that is so potent that uh, uh, it can, uh, well, about something, one to three thousand, one thousand to three times, uh, um, uh, three thousand, yeah, one to three thousand times more potent than uh, hydromorphone, and they use that to uh, put down, well, not to kill, but to uh, uh, put down a um, rhinoceros or an elephant to, to check them out, to tag them, uh, to uh, treat them if they have a problem or an injury. And uh, that shows you how potent uh, this uh, really is. And of course, that amount would probably <laughs> put a lot of people out of business permanently. But the bottom line is, is that you have these, um, these factors that modern medicine has uh, demonized. And of course, we can talk about cocaine from the coca leaf, uh, we can talk about cannabis. All of these have uh, healing properties uh, uh, relative to what they are and what they can do. Uh, we can also look at uh, psychedelic mushrooms, the so-called magic mushrooms. 
These things are all part of uh, North American uh, native lore. Uh, the, the cocaine, of course, would be uh, Central or South America. Uh, opium is something that seems to be worldwide anyways. Certainly in the uh, 19th century, uh, all kinds of uh, syrups and uh, elixirs contained opiates. And, uh, and uh, there was, seemed to be no problem with it. Uh, however, um, in the 20th century, all of a sudden these drugs are demonized. And I think it certainly corresponds to the rise of uh, the pharmaceutical industry. From the advent of the uh, discovery of, uh, of aspirin, and the patenting of it, and of course uh, the patenting of uh, many other drugs. And uh, the funny part of it is, is that the opiates, uh, the cocaine, and um, the uh, cannabis, none of these have any of the side effects that uh, the synthetic drugs have. Very interesting. We'll get more into detail on this in a minute, but there's a lot of listeners that I'm sure know you, but for the benefit of those who don't, Obviously, you are the Encyclopedia of Natural Health. You've had four decades in the natural health industry, running your own natural health food store. You've been on the radio for 10, 15 years. Yes. A few years ago, you were given an honorary doctorate in philosophy from the Naturopathic Society of Quebec. Yes, uh, I'm also an honorary member of that organization. And, uh, and you're a master herbalist under the Dominion... Herbal College. That's correct. Uh, that's an honorary uh, uh, master herbalist. Uh, and that was uh, given to me in recognition for a series uh, of uh, lectures that I conducted over several summers uh, on behalf of their uh, uh, summer practicum that they were putting on for their uh, uh, students who were getting their chartered or master herbalist uh, certificates. And uh, Yes, and of course, when you get into uh, when you get into business, uh, I believe that you better know what you're talking about when you're selling product, regardless of what it is, regardless if it's an automobile or uh, whether it's a vitamin, and uh, that way uh, you can do the best for your customer by giving them knowledge, because knowledge is empowerment, and uh, if they know what these can do for you, and uh, and realize that uh, that uh, they are so safe, it's just unbelievable. And strangely enough, uh, when we're talking about the opiates, uh, Dr. Abe Hoffer, the great Canadian uh, biochemist and uh, medical doctor and psychiatrist, he was curing alcoholics with opium. Dr. Hoffer recently passed away, unfortunately. Um, yeah, in his uh, 92nd year. 92nd year, which yeah. is... is uh, is a great year to. And he was a great believer in vitamins and uh, and uh, minerals and uh, and herbals, and uh, and I guess they must have done him in good stead for him to enjoy a 90, 92 year lifespan. And Dr. Hoffer was a, a psychiatrist. Yes, he was, and of course that's where uh, his interest in uh, the B vitamins uh, and vitamin C with regard to uh, mental health. Uh, he uh, established the fact that niacin, for instance, uh, was uh, excellent for people uh, suffering from uh, mental disorder, whether it was uh, uh, schizophrenia particularly, and he's still not, this is still not recognized. I, I've uh, crossed words with uh, uh, physicians from uh, the University Hospital or the University of Medical School uh, here in uh, British Columbia, and they... Uh, they just don't know what they're talking about. They say, oh, it doesn't work, or it's toxic, hasn't been proven. 
And when you ask them, well, have you tried it? No. Well, then you don't know what you're talking about. And uh, I've seen some marvelous turnarounds. Uh, people follow this, uh, you know, a medical doctor who knows the work of Dr. Hoffer or a psychiatrist who knows that. And there are a few around, but unfortunately, few and far between. Uh, a person doesn't need to be hearing these voices. Uh, a person doesn't have to be uh, getting paranoid and, um, or going into fits of depression and all the various aspects that uh, can be problems with mental health. Uh, and, of course, we've seen the work of uh, the uh, group with the uh, EM Power Plus, True Hope, and, uh, and, uh, and the, the, the scandal of the federal government trying to shut that down when uh, clearly uh, the, the studies were showing that it works and uh, they were so frightened that they actually shut down a study at the University of Calgary. Uh, and wh who were they serving, these bureaucrats? And unfortunately, some of the po their political masters, uh, obviously big pharma, because uh, some of these psychiatric drugs are hundreds, if not thousands of dollars per treatment. And uh, niacin does a marvelous thing for a, ma for a few pennies a day. Well, True Hope did an analysis, an economic analysis, on how much their product has saved the Canadian taxpayer. And it's in the millions. The government wants to save money on health care, and if our friend across uh, the border, President Obama, wants to do something about health care, they should embrace natural medicine. Uh, they would soon find that uh, they'd uh, be well on the way to uh, seeing that every U.S. citizen was getting the kind of uh, health care that they need. But the same goes for Canadians. Uh, we think our health care is, uh, is pretty good, but there's a lot of flaws, and, and the biggest flaw of all is uh, the attempt of the pharmaceutical and medical establishment to try and shut down the natural health industry. Uh, they attack the naturopaths, uh, they attack the chiropractors, uh, even the massage therapist or the physiotherapist is uh, not uh, above uh, <laughs> being attacked by these um, minions who are supposed to be protecting our health. Now. When I say these things, it's not that I'm condemning medical doctors because there are many fine medical doctors out there uh, who have uh, gone beyond just uh, writing prescriptions. Uh, they really get into uh, what their patients' uh, problems are, but they use vitamins. Uh, they use uh, uh, treatments uh, that, uh, like chelation therapy, for instance, uh, uh, for uh, circulatory diseases, and uh, all of the chelation therapy uh, for circulation for cardiovascular disease, uh, that evolved out of treating people for uh, heavy metal poisoning, people who were working in, in the heavy uh, non-ferrous smelter industry, for instance, and um, getting lead poisoning and, or poisoning from other metals, and chelation therapy was developed to treat them because, uh, especially during wartime when uh, they had to keep uh, these people working, and they couldn't afford to have them off sick, and so they came up with a, with a chemical. Yes, uh, it's uh, ethylene diamine tetracetic acid. It has no affinity for the human body or vice versa, and while it's circling through the whole body, it picks up uh, toxic minerals that we don't need, like lead and mercury, and uh, too much copper, or maybe too much aluminum, uh, too much calcium for people who are suffering from hypercalcemia, and so on, people who've got calcification in the arteries, all of these things respond to this treatment. Doctors who uh, recognize that went out, they put their practice, their professional uh, rights on the line and, uh, 
and established it. And now we have doctors in British Columbia, Alberta, Saskatchewan, just recently in Manitoba, in Ontario, uh, and uh, in Nova Scotia, and Newfoundland. The only holdouts in Canada, I don't know about the Northern Territories, like the Yukon or uh, uh, whatever, but, but uh, Quebec is the holdout, unfortunately. Well, this is, uh, this is coming also from the former president of the BC Chelation Therapy Association. Well, I certainly worked hard with a lot of other people, especially the late Ted Dixon, who uh, uh, himself suffering terribly from cardiovascular disease and looking for answers. And I was the one that told him to go and uh, see a medical doctor who was offering chelation therapy in Bellingham. And it worked so well for him. He said, we got to get this going in BC. And he started, he founded the uh, EDTA Chelation Association of British Columbia. And uh, we ran into some problems with the, the bureaucrats over that because he unfortunately put in their uh, lobby. And of course, that made it political. And uh, he couldn't get any uh, further with the government over that. And, and even though we changed the name to just ED, EDTA Chelation Association, of uh, Vancouver or British Columbia that uh, didn't uh, wash well with the likes of what we have in uh, Victoria right now particularly. And uh, by the way, I see that uh, the um, GS or the PST is now going to apply to vitamins uh, and, uh, and, and other uh, health products that the are... new harmonized HST. Yeah, this is a harmonized HST, which is what I would call a, a real uh, hit on people who take personal responsibility for their health and use vitamins, herbals, and other natural health products that either come in a pill or a, or a tablet or capsule form. And uh, I don't know how far they'll get away with uh, taxing uh, powders and things like that, but uh, you know, they it's the way it is. Uh, uh, and uh, we were able to, uh, for a long time, uh, keep a provincial sales tax off of the natural health products industry in British Columbia. We, we couldn't persuade uh, the Tories under uh, Mulroney to uh, make natural health products exempt from the GST. And of course, uh, we're not having any greater or any better success with the current conservative government in Ottawa. So you were the president of the BC Chelation Therapy Association. Yes. You were also the co-founder of the Health Action Network. That's true. How did you get started with the health? Well, again, uh, there was a group of us that realized that we needed uh, an organization uh, that uh, would put on lectures, uh, public lectures, uh, independent of the of the uh, natural health products industry or the Canadian Health Food Association or similar organizations, which are strictly in the business of doing business. We wanted a consumer health group, a consumer-oriented group that uh, would keep people alert as to uh, what is going on in the natural health products uh, industry, what's going on in natural health care, whether it's to do with naturopaths or medical doctors, things like chelation therapy, alternative cancer therapies uh, that are available now in Canada and the United States and, uh, and were before you had to leave the country to go to Mexico or else uh, to uh, some place in Europe to get uh, uh, treatments that... Uh, some of them are available now. And, um, and of course, there has been an ongoing attack against uh, uh, alternative medicine. And of course, the theme of this is, of course, is uh, uh, what the ancients knew about modern medicine uh, and what medicine, rather, and what modern medicine forgot. 
Well, maybe uh, our, our, the Inuit people or the people of uh, the Haida or uh, uh, other uh, tribes here in, uh, in British Columbia or other uh, Aboriginal people across Canada, the Cree or uh, whatever or whomever, uh, they knew how to deal with, uh, with fever. That's why they had a sweat lodge. Or they used the hot springs where they were available. Uh, or uh, in the case of uh, the Scandinavians, and that would be the Laplanders as well, and the people all across the, Ar the Arctic Circle in Siberia and Alaska, they knew about these things, sweat lodges, uh, uh, steam baths, or uh, hot springs to deal with fever. Well, part of what we're doing here with Health Empowerment News is we're going to look at the, the headlines in the news and what's the biggest headline right now for the past uh, two Swine months? Swine flu. Swine flu. And how many people remember, and of course there's a lot of people that wouldn't remember because this happened before they were born, and, uh, but way back in 1976, uh, there was a, a, a threatened pandemic. A couple of uh, soldiers came down with what was considered to be swine flu. One of them died. Of course, they overlooked the fact that he just came off a very uh, arduous route march, and he probably died, a march, I should say, a route march, and a uh, training exercise, and he probably died from exhaustion more than anything else. But uh, it just so happened it was an election year for uh, the selected president, Gerald Ford, who uh, was appointed president, uh, succeeding the disgraced, and resigned uh, uh, Richard Nixon. And uh, what a good political issue to have. Uh, we're going to save you from this terrible swine flu uh, that's uh, brought down our uh, Marines over at Fort uh, Dietrich or wherever it was on the eastern seaboard. And uh, so the Centers for Disease Control, they cranked up. And in the meantime, uh, there was a gentleman by the name of uh, John Anthony Morris. Uh, he was the chief uh, microbiologist of the U.S. Uh, Food and Drug Administration. Uh, an expert in uh, virus and viral disease, and he said um, uh, there isn't going to be a pandemic, and if there was, uh, the vaccine they have developed uh, wouldn't stop it anyways, and in fact would do more, more harm than good. Uh, for his efforts, he was fired, and his uh, laboratory was dismantled, ongoing, uh, ongoing uh, experiments were smashed, and that was the end of that for him. But um, by the time they had 10 million people having received the shot, they had uh, 1 million adverse uh, reactions, uh, and they had uh, uh, some of them very severe. I forget thousands uh, suffered uh, from paralytic uh, polio. Uh, there, if you search on the net, uh, there is a 60-minute segment available. I don't have the URL, uh, URL before me, but um, if, you, uh, if you Google... 60 um, minutes. I'll, uh, I'll post the URL in the show notes. Excellent. For the and uh, the, the, uh, uh, there is uh, um, Michael Wallace, Mike Wallace uh, interviewing one of the victims of, of, the, of the vaccine itself. And of course, if you ask anybody who is administering these vaccines, uh, let me have a look at the manufacturer's uh, uh, declaration regarding uh, the uh, ingredients. Uh, as well as uh, the uh, possible side effects. Uh, invariably, you will find that William-Barre syndrome, which is a form of paralytic polio, is one of the possible side effects of these vaccines. And of course, that is what happened with uh, the swine flu vaccine of 1976. 
and I'd be willing to bet uh, dollars to donuts that there may well be problems with this uh, vaccine that they're rushing now. How can they tell in a matter of four months, if even that, that this vaccine is going to be effective, never mind safe, because you can have an adverse reaction to a vaccine uh, only a matter of uh, a few months after the shot. Some people react right away. A lot of infants have died uh, from the shock of a vaccine. So are you saying you're going to abstain from the vaccine, Croft? Oh, I would definitely. I've been abstaining from vaccines ever since I got a load of them uh, when I was uh, uh, involved uh, in, uh, um, well, I, I had to join an organization uh, th that I was interested in joining at the time. I was only uh, 18 years old, and uh, they had to give you an awful lot of shots, you see, as a, as a part of, uh, of uh, being uh, taken on by these people. And... Um, and, of course, uh, I went through the business of the shots and uh, had an awfully sore arm. And the funny thing is, is that the smallpox shot didn't take. It didn't get that great big pustule on the, on the arm, and, uh, and it never left a scar. It was because there wasn't many pustule to leave a scar. And uh, so it didn't take. So uh, I don't know. Uh, it's um, one of those things. And, um, however, I think that because of all those shots, I, I have certain issues uh, of health that I'm uh, looking at now. And, uh, and I'm looking back and I'm just wondering if some of those shots might have had something to do with it. But, I mean, that goes back, I, I mean, heavens, I'm in my 75th year now. So, uh, uh, this goes back, you know, almost uh, 35, uh, what, uh, what am I saying, hmm, 50 years anyways. The World Health Organization is urging all countries to vaccinate their populations. Oh, yeah, they even want to uh, make it mandatory, which, of course, is, uh, is an assault on they one's person against their will. I don't know if they said mandatory, but they said strongly urge. Yes, well, of course, uh, that's what they did in 1976. And uh, well over a million people in the U.S., uh, before they stopped uh, uh, the vaccination program and uh, tried to bury it, uh, suffered uh, needless uh, pain uh, and uh, and adverse reactions, uh, um, which they didn't have to go through had uh, the uh, people at the Centers for Disease Control done their business. But we have people uh, in government right now in the bu health bureaucracy that deny that vaccines cause any problem. Uh, and a child practically has to drop dead in the doctor's office before they will recognize that the vaccine may have caused that. Uh, that that's how bad it is. And, of course, um, one of the most outspoken people is uh, Robert F. Kennedy, Jr., the son of the assassinated Bobby Kennedy, who was, of course, President uh, JFK's uh, uh, attorney general. And he has spoken out about uh, the damage that vaccines are doing in the United States, where they are compulsory. And, by the way, uh, you cannot get liability insurance if you are a vaccine manufacturer. They are so safe, you can't get liability insurance. I mean, uh, if something is as safe as they claim it is, then, uh, then uh, they should have no trouble offering you liability insurance in case the vaccine should injure you or worse, kill you. But they can't do that. And in fact, uh, by 1987, there was so much damage done by the vaccine programs because they'd made them, uh, uh, really had promoted them and made them, uh, made them compulsory. Uh, that uh, there was only three vaccine manufacturers uh, left, one of them being Merck. And they told uh, the then uh, 
Secretary of, uh, of Health that uh, they were going to shut down uh, because uh, the, uh, the damages uh, that they were paying out were getting to the point where there, were, there was no profit in manufacturing vaccines. So Congress um, in 1987, uh, besides making vaccinations mandatory, uh, they also uh, passed a law that the U.S. government would assume liability, and they instituted a Vaccine Adverse Events Reporting System, the VAERS program. And uh, since 1987, when that program was instituted, uh, they have uh, paid out almost $3 billion in damages, and that only represents 10% of the claims. And of course, uh, under the Bush administration, they passed legislation which uh, uh, even, uh, even though they were exempt uh, before from uh, liability, they're even further exempt, whether it's the anthrax vaccine that they're trying to foist on people and of course these other vaccines that they've been coming down with. Uh, the bottom line is, is that uh, if something is so safe, then, uh, then the liability should be solid on it. So that, uh, uh, you put your money where your mouth is, but they don't do that. And of course, uh, doctors don't speak out against it because the College of Physicians and Surgeons, their medical licensing board, will take away their license and uh, practice and put them out of business. So they just offer the vaccine, and, and if you refuse, they don't push it unless they are a real uh, you know, uh, money hound because they might get a... Uh, a back pay, you know, a p payment for offering the shots, you see. Well, the, uh, the other thing is with the swine flu vaccine, it's almost the reverse of what they normally, the profile of the people that they're targeting for the vaccine. Yeah, the, uh, the very young, uh, the elderly, and those people who have some chronic disease. And these are the ones that are most vulnerable, actually, to uh, an adverse reaction uh, to a vaccine. For the, for the seasonal flu, yeah. they recommend the elderly. Mm -hmm. uh, and for the swine flu, they're recommending people in my age category mm -hmm. uh, as are healthy, healthy young adults. Yeah. Uh, pregnant women, which mm -hmm. they never recommend a pregnant woman. And of woman course, to get a that's the last thing a pregnant woman needs is uh, a, a vaccine shot that that has uh, mercury in it, uh, and because it's a neurotoxin and. Uh, uh, and of course, the way these things are made up, we don't know if you're getting an accurate dose anyways when you get a shot of this crap. And I say it is crap. It's filth. Uh, when you consider what these vaccines are incubated, in the case of these, uh, this new swine flu, they're actually incubating it in, uh, in uh, I believe, uh, monkey tissue. And, uh, and of course, uh, this is how... Uh, the SV40, that's simian virus uh, 40, that's a monkey virus, SV standing for simian virus. Uh, this simian virus 40 uh, became in, uh, inoculated into the population that received the first uh, uh, Salk uh, and uh, Sabin polio vaccines because uh, these vaccines were incubated in the tissues of African green monkey. And, uh, and now what is happening is that these people have, uh, have had these uh, vaccines and some of them are showing up with tumors and in the tumors they're finding this virus, SV40. Now, we don't know and they can't say whether or not uh, the, the virus is uh, causing the cancer or a tumor or if it's just a fellow traveler. I mean, where else are you, just like the flu vaccine, we talk about bird flu, for instance, or we talk about it, well, Public health talks about bird flu, and there's been they've been talking about a great f bird flu pandemic, 
you know, which hasn't manifested it yet, it's supposed to be from wild birds, but where do they incubate the annual flu shots? In birds' eggs, chicken or duck egg or embryo. Where else are you going to find bird viruses but in duck egg or, or chicken egg and, and the embryo of both those birds? I mean, it's absurd. And, uh, and because of this stupidity, they're not, their filtration isn't that great that they can catch all these viruses. I mean, when you consider what we hear about what HIV can do, uh, you know, these viruses are pretty clever. And I think they need to be a lot more careful with what they're doing. With in terms of vaccinology, and then of course I, I have a real issue because we were talking, we were talking about how uh, the, the Aboriginal people uh, of all continents uh, used uh, the old technique of feeding a fever, that is keeping the patient warm uh, and well hydrated and well nourished, uh, a cold pre compress over the forehead and at the back of the head to prevent convulsions, and that's how they would deal with a fever. That's what many of the old uh, shaman of times past and, and the herbalists, all, they all knew this. And of course the trouble was is in the, uh, in the 15th and 16th century they were uh, burned at the stake or, uh, or hung or drawn and quartered and so on for witchcraft. Because uh, the, the, uh, their competitors, namely the, uh, the alchemists and, uh, and the surgeons uh, didn't like the competition and it hasn't changed much today. So for a high fever, you would recommend staying warm? For a high fever, uh, you keep warm. Uh, you keep uh, wool socks on the feet, an extra blanket over you, uh, even a, uh, a, uh, a wool sock around the neck, uh, a, a, a nourishing broth. or Certainly you keep them well hydrated, but a nourishing broth is a good way to do it. And of course, a cold compress that you keep changing on the forehead and also at the back of the head. Nowadays, you can use an ice pack at the back of the head. And the purpose of that is to keep the person from going into convulsions. Right? Because uh, due to the high the brain, temperature. You don't want the brain overheating. But uh, the fact is, is that even, uh, even suffering convulsion from a fever, uh, uh, any evidence of brain damage has been very, very rare. So the fever is the body's natural defense against that the virus. That is how the body kills viruses. It's very hard to find this information uh, out there in the scientific, but uh, I mean, I, I contacted uh, a microbiologist who is a medical doctor working on, on, uh, on viruses and also on, uh, on HIV. And I asked him, well, how is it, uh, why do we have fevers? I mean, I knew the answer already. Because uh, viruses can't replicate uh, body temperatures uh, in excess of, uh, what, uh, 102 degrees uh, Fahrenheit and about, uh, I guess, 98 or 98.5 degrees Celsius. They cannot replicate. And that's how the body gets rid of viruses. You have neutrophil phagocytes. Uh, you have other uh, uh, cells that go around uh, dealing with uh, injury with infection, whether it's germs, whether it's uh, uh, fungus, uh, whether it is uh, uh, some viruses, and so on. But viruses, when they replicate in the cell, they are able to hide because in, uh, in destroying the, uh, the, the nucleus of the cell, they take the protein coating, part of it, and coat themselves. And of course, uh, your immune cells are fooled because of this protein coating is, is part of them. And so they ignore it. But the point is when the virus infection gets to a, what you'd call a critical mass, the body recognizes it and it starts producing uh, uh, these different um, 
uh, interleukin and uh, this sort of thing. Uh, I'm not too good on all these uh, ter medical terms. And that's uh, how uh, the body will bring on a fever. And, uh, and of course, some people will go through a fever and get over it. Others uh, need to be really taken care of. Unfortunately, if you use a, a fever-suppressing drug like Tamiflu, and we've seen deaths of 50 children or our juveniles in Japan a few years ago uh, who uh, were treated with Tamiflu, I think that would be the worst thing you can do. And of course, Valenza is its inhalant version. Uh, and uh, I, I would certainly uh, uh, would urge anybody to uh, stay away from something like that. Aspirin, uh, they in fact warn you not to use aspirin to treat a fever in a child because it can cause Ray's syndrome. It reminds me of Sean Buckley's lecture uh, when he's talking about Bill C-51 and, and uh, back before uh, Big Pharma took over the, the uh, the health si the healthcare system yeah and the conservative party of canada we'd have uh, y there was a uh, a choice in healthcare you could choose to go to a allopathic hospital or you could choose to go to a homeopathic hospital and uh during the uh the last flu pan pandemic when there was a choice the people who went to the allopathic hospital they had a 60% chance of of dying it was more yeah just about that right and uh only forty uh, percent of the people died in the in the other one, so it was it was a reverse. Your, your odds your odds of survival were were much greater if you went to the homeopathic, homeopathic. hospital. Yes, and I imagine it's because they were doing exactly what you are saying. Well, uh, it was interesting too because I remember there was some bearded uh, physician at Mount Sinai Hospital in Toronto. This is, I believe, a teaching hospital in the University of Toronto Medical School. Uh, anyways. Uh, uh, so somebody uh, asked him, well, what about vitamin C? And, oh, it's not proven. Well, have you tried it? That's the question should have been asked, but wasn't. But they haven't tried it. Because uh, right here in the lower mainland, I know doctors that use vitamin C to treat viral infections quite successfully, eliminating hepatitis C. It's a matter of record in the, in the scientific uh, uh, journals uh, how effective vitamin C, even orally, is a potent antiviral agent. Vitamin D3, which you can pick up over the counter in health food stores, uh, vitamin shops, as well as pharmacies, is a very potent uh, antiviral and, uh, and a powerful immune uh, uh, booster. Vitamin D. For years, we just thought, oh, for the healthy bones, you know, the sunshine vitamin. But uh, by the way, in sunshine itself, uh, besides supplying us with the ultraviolet B rays uh, that are the rays that um, are responsible for uh, us being able to make vitamin D on our skin, uh, the sunshine's ray, the sun, the sun's rays are antiviral in their own uh, right. Viruses cannot stand sunshine. They can't stand heat. They can't stand oxygen. Uh, hence, things like uh, hyperbaric oxygen therapy is great for viral uh, infection. Uh, uh, ozone therapy, hydrogen peroxide as a uh, as a, uh, a disinfectant. Uh, I mean, I could go on and on. Even good old uh, acetic acid in, in the form of vinegar, whether it's apple cider vinegar, whether it's raw or uh, or pasteurized, whether it's even good old Heinz white vinegar. These are powerful antiviral agents. And of course, but you boost your immune system. First of all, get off the sugar trick. You know, for every can of soda that is sugar sweetened, whether it's good old glucose, uh, cane sugar, or fructose, um, for every teaspoon consumed, 
your white blood cells are shut down at the rate of 50% for a five-hour period. So the average can of pop uh, probably runs, uh, could run, eight to, depending on the brand, eight to 10 teaspoons of sugar. And so uh, that means 40 to 50 hours of reduced immune function by 50%. 50% of the nu neutrophil uh, phagocytes, and they comprise about 60% of your white cells that roam around in the bloodstream looking for, looking for trouble to clean up, whether it's germs, whether it's traveling cancer cells, so-called metastases, uh, or, or, uh, or, you know, I mentioned fungus, uh, anything like that. Or if there's an injury to clean up the, the dead cells and the debris, when you see pus in, a, in, a, in, an, in, you know, in an injury, those are dead uh, white cells that are there, have been there to, they've sacrificed themselves to help protect you. But here you are taking uh, a soda, which is loaded with sugar, and you're putting these cells out of business for as much as 50 hours, or worse, if you have a couple of cans. And what about those huge king size that people guzzle down? <laughs> you know, this is unbelievable. Our three references in, this, uh, in the scientific journals, the, ear the earliest ones are way back, I know, 19, uh, was it 1959 or and, and way back in that era. And it was done by uh, two um, physicians, uh, one of them, Dr. Emanuel Cheraskin, who founded and headed the Department of Oral Medicine at the University, University of Alabama in Birmingham. And um, they, uh, he and his colleagues used medical and dental students uh, as guinea pigs. And they established this fact, this reduced immune function. And uh, of course, the, the medical students and dental students, they got a pass for participating in the study for being volunteers. Nobody suffered for it, but they were able to establish uh, that uh, you have reduced immunity when you have this type of high sugar consumption. The one sugar that was exempt from this effect was real maple syrup. Real maple syrup doesn't have that effect. Honey does, and of course, uh, cane sugar, fruit sugar. Well, maple syrup doesn't spike your insulin levels nearly as much as honey. That's and right, and sugar. why? Because in maple syrup, you've got minerals. And you've got other nutritional factors, including B vitamins, that will also have an effect, a positive effect on immune, immune function. So it's a, it's a balanced sugar. Yeah, that's it. But a can of pop is, is, is the obvious example, but some people don't realize that even, you know, even if you don't drink pop, you're getting high fructose corn syrup, you're getting sugar in almost everything that you can buy in a grocery store. Yeah. Anything processed, anything that comes in a can uh, is loaded with sugar. Absolutely, and uh, and of course, uh, the late can't think of his name right now, but he was the head of the Department of uh, Nutrition at uh, Harvard University. They called him the cornflakes doctor or cornflakes professor, because he was a great defender of the use of sugar, whether it was uh, in canning, or or uh, you know fruit and vegetables, or whether it was uh, uh, you know in uh, cornflakes and processed cereals. He had no problem with that. At, uh, anyways, probably a name that's best forgotten in the medical literature. Uh, it's a great embarrassment to the dietitians and uh, nutritionists uh, who've had anything to do with the Harvard School of Nutrition. Well, the the food supply has degraded in the last. Oh 50 yeah, well, years. and of course, agriculture itself is degraded because uh, they've got away from uh, the traditional methods of farming that that uh, we learned uh, way back uh, uh, after the plague because. Uh, 
with the European population was growing and, and growing, and uh, but uh, the farm farmland got worked out, and uh, and so they a great plague came along, and it was probably because of nutritional deficiencies because their their the nutrition wasn't in the food anymore, and uh, the result is is that um, I guess uh, tens if uh, maybe hundreds of thousands of acres of uh, former farmland uh, went fallow for for. Uh, well over uh, 100 years or 150 years. And as the population came back and started growing, uh, more farming had to be done. And, and they opened up these fields that had laid fallow for so long. And they were getting quality prop crops. And a few people realized that, hey, you've got to rotate the crops and give the land a rest. And then, of course, along came the business of, uh, of uh, recycling uh, uh, you know, uh, organic matter and putting it back into the soil and uh, the so-called uh, green uh, manure, uh, growing alfalfa and plowing it in and so on. Rotating the crops. That's and right. And then we have the great work of, uh, of the, uh, the agronomist, uh, uh, Sir Albert Howard, who uh, worked on these great estates in, in uh, India uh, uh, during the first part of the 20th century. Uh, he wrote a book called An Agricultural Testament, Albert Howard. If you, you can Google it, and you will find it in, uh, on the net. And uh, he proved, uh, for instance, that hoof and mouth disease is a nutritional deficiency disease among cattle. Uh, his cattle, from on the estate that he was uh, uh, working, they were so prized that the, the Hindus... Uh, in celebrating their their religious uh, holidays and uh, and uh, such, they begged to have his cattle in the parade because, of course, as you know, uh, uh, with the Hindu uh, religion, uh, the, the the cow is sacred, and uh, these beautiful, healthy animals uh, they loved having them in their parades, their holiday parades, their religious ceremonies, and uh, yet his cattle could rub noses with cattle in the next estate cattle in the next estate that had hoof and mouth disease and his and uh, and uh, sir howard's uh, he was knighted by king george the uh, the sixth for his work in recognition for what he did I mean, his his cattle did not get hoof and mouth disease but what do they do when they had the hoof and mouth outbreak in the united kingdom or and didn't they have something here i forget they kill them and then bury them well that might be good for the soil because it will all return back and feed the soil but uh, that's not the answer and so, one thing, of course, it pushed the price up of beef, which is bad news if you're if you're a beef eater and you like your hamburger. But uh, and of course, this is what they did with chicken flu. You know, they, this and uh, bird flu. Well, and of course, they blamed it on the wild birds again. I mean, I I've never heard such congenital idiots that pass for uh, so-called veterinarian scientists. Uh, you know, uh, and I'm not going to mention any specific province, but I heard some of this stuff. They were blaming the ducks and the geese and other wild birds flying over these uh, these egg farms, you know, or the chicken farms where the bird chickens are tens of thousands of birds undercover. So uh, where is the, the the bird dew falling? It's not hitting those birds, but I'll tell you one thing: those chickens were doing. They were standing cheek by well, we'll say beak by tail feathers in their own feces. Uh, drinking water laced with antibiotics, uh, eating food probably laced with antibiotics as well, and uh, growth hormones to make them grow fa faster. Is it any wonder in such an environment they would come down with the flu? 
could have been solved maybe if they put some vitamin C in the in the uh, in the feed and maybe some vitamin C in the drinking water. Made it might have made a whole lot of difference. It's a funny thing when I was a kid, when I was 12 years old, we moved out to a semi-rural area and onto an uncle's uh, hobby farm, and I inherited 90 chickens to look after. And I never had any chickens suffer what these chickens uh, suffered. Didn't have to put any down except for a chicken in the, two chickens in the pot because a family would come out to freeload, you know. <laughs> well, what you were talking about was a, uh, it was a response from the, farm, from the uh, big agri industry. Mm -hmm. They were complaining that open, free-range, organic chicken farms were dangerous because they were exposed to wild ducks. Yeah. And they weren't not not one of the uh, not one of the uh, of the of the of the organic birds that were ha had access to the outdoors and, and outside pasture came down with anything, and uh, it was it was the uh, it was the agribusiness uh, chickens the that were had the chicken flu or the bird flu they were the ones and they killed them all and they were so arrogant they were going around telling people they'd have to kill their exotic birds like these. You know, very rare uh, breeds of uh, of uh, poultry. You know, the Japanese silkies and the buff Orpingtons and things like that. Birds you never see uh, anymore, and uh, it's just uh, unbelievable. And of course, even parrots weren't exempt either. They wanted to kill them too. You know, just uh, absolutely insane. But then, uh, but then that's uh, modern medicine. Uh, you know, if they can't cure you, they're going to kill you. Well, that's iatrogenesis, isn't it? Well, yes, of course, that's what iatrogenesis means, is uh, in the disease is induced by the physician. Uh, also, of course, uh, people say, well, are there, is there any scientific evidence to back up uh, what I've been saying? Well, yes, there is. Uh, I've cited the work of Dr. Cheraskin and his colleagues at the University of um, Alabama Department of Oral Medicine uh, and their School of Medicine in Birmingham, but uh, someone like Jonathan uh, V. Wright, that's W-R-I-G-H-T, uh, who is in, um, I think it's uh, Renton, Washington. Mm -hmm. uh, when I first came across him, and this, is, this goes back so many years now, it must be about a good uh, 40 years, Dr. Wright and his colleague at, at that time, uh, they... Um, uh, his name escapes me right now, but uh, they were at the University of Washington uh, Medical School. Uh, Wright, by the way, is a Harvard-trained physician. Uh, but he and his colleague, they went through uh, the, uh, the medical journals. And at that time, uh, something like about 29,000 citations and references in, in these uh, medical journals, scientific journals, these are peer-reviewed, and so on and so forth, attesting to natural healing through uh, nutrition, uh, whether it's supplementation or dietary changes, and so on. Uh, a few years ago, when uh, we had Dr. Wright here in Vancouver talking about uh, giving a lecture, of course, uh, he was giving a lecture on our behalf when we had a convention uh, in, in Richmond at the Richmond Inn, and uh, we had a beautiful turnout. Uh, over the three days, we must have had about 1,600 people show up in total. Uh, in any case, uh, I asked him, well, this, you know, I reminded him about what he uh, and his, uh, doc his friend, Dr. Alan Gaby, had uh, found when they were at the University of Washington. And he said, well, it's probably about three times that amount now. And, uh, and of course, uh, 
he has a newsletter, and his clinic is is uh, doing great work. And of course, he's a classic example of how Big Brother, Big Government, is trying to shut you down because Big Pharma doesn't like what you're doing. Well, he was raided by the FDA. He was raided by the FDA. Imagine, here's a doctor and his colleagues uh, running a clinic. They've got people in, in the clinic receiving various forms of treatment, and in comes, the doors are kicked in. All they had to do was knock on the door and let uh, uh, to be let in. Sheriff's deputies and, uh, and FDA agents carrying, wearing flag jackets and carrying guns, brandishing them, terrorizing the patients, and seizing everything. You know, and of course, uh, the end result was is that the FDA agreed that it was wrong, and Dr. Wright agreed that he'd drop uh, the, the, the liability suit that he had against them, because uh, they didn't like the, what the publicity would be when it was coming out in the suit. It was pretty rotten, and uh, so he's been left alone pretty well. But uh, other doctors since then have suffered similar fate, and, and, it, and of course, we've seen this happen here in uh, I believe in Kelowna recently, and then of course we've seen it happen in the prairies and in Ontario and Quebec. So, so there's no shortage of, sh of scientific evidence to support these ancient remedies. Uh, absolutely no shortage at all. And uh, I think I mentioned uh, I was in touch with a with a medical doctor and a virologist who he was doing work on researching HIV, and I asked him uh, why. I asked him, why is it that we get fevers? I wanted to see if he knew. And he said, to kill viruses. Now, of course, I already knew that, but that was the answer I was expecting here. But this is the question I then asked. Why does that not apply to HIV? I've yet to re receive a, an answer to that one. And that's the question that we will be focusing on, I'm sure, in future uh, uh, episodes of... Uh, Health Empowerment News. Exactly. So we're getting close to the end of our time here. We'll be back next week. Any topic you want to talk about next week, Croft? Oh, I'm sure we'll have um, um, an update on the swine flu, uh, which is I think is going to be an impending fiasco. Uh, and I will have more about uh, the uh, vaccine lawsuits uh, that are going on in the United States, uh, vaccine court, and the, the dirty tricks that uh, the government tries to uh, used to neutralize uh, the families of these uh, dead or injured children. And of course, uh, people wonder why uh, CanWest, for instance, editorializes uh, against uh, those who question the safety of vaccines, but doesn't tell you the other side of the story that, in fact, millions of dollars have been paid out in these vaccine court injuries cases uh, to the, uh, the families of inju injured or, uh, or killed children. And uh, so I have absolutely no respect for CanWest as a news source. And I see that they've had to close down their television station in uh, Victoria, Check. Channel 6. So I'm not exactly weeping over that. I'll give them an offer, like uh, we'll take it over for $6. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed the first episode of Health Empowerment News. We'll be back again with Prof Woodruff next week. <laughs>